Well, good morning and welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. Welcome to Eastlake uh, Online for those of you who are watching online or perhaps on replay via our super trendy and cool app. Thanks for making it happen. Week two of our series called Nudge. It's been a series uh, on, uh, we, we called it a series on discipline or, or next steps or whatever, but it's this idea of uh, nudges come out of behavioral economics that when there's a preferred outcome uh, that we would like to get to, we set up these little nudges in place to kind of get us to the spot where we're more inclined to do what we want to do. So we have these goal in minds or whatever. Or we defined it in this way, if you remember from last week. Here's what nudge defined looks like. Any aspect of the choice architecture, which is a fancy word, any aspect of the choice architecture that alters people's behavior in a predictable way without forbidding any actions or options or significantly changing their economic incentives. Blah, 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 blah. All that means is we set up choice architecture. We make things easy for ourselves to do. I wanted to drink more water, and I'm drinking coffee, but it, this is a bad example. But if I want to drink more water, I buy a nice water bottle. If I want to become more of a runner, I buy nice running shoes. I, buy, I do this. I set up myself for success to be able to do this so that I'm more inclined to make this desired thing happen. I don't forbid myself to do something. Like, I cannot drink this. I cannot drink coffee. Because as soon as you say you cannot eat from that tree... What do we want to do? Eat from the dang tree, right? So, um, and it's not overly uh, incentivized. I'm not getting paid $100 or $500 to do this. Um, uh, we'll, we'll do kind of weight loss challenges with people, which is fine, except what happens when you're incentivizing a weight loss challenge is you, you do you know, you, whatever you need to do to win the challenge if you're competitive like me, and then like the day after that, you, you go to like Dickie's Food Buffet or something like, you know what I mean? It's like there's so, much, there's so much food that you just gorge yourself with or cheat days become awful, and then it's just this big seesaw anyways. And we go, no, we want, I want to make smart life decisions moving forward, so therefore I don't want to forbid myself from I don't want to um, overly incentivize myself. I just want to gently, gently, gently nudge myself towards better behavior. So we run into this in several arenas of life. Today on your way driving here, if you drove here, or today later on if you go out, you're going to see some road signs. They're going to caution you. They're going to be a nudge. Hey, there's a corner coming up. It'd be really smart for you to kind of tone it down to about 40 miles an hour. I see what you're doing there. You take this to 65, it's going to be rough. I, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just nudging you so that you are more likely to not go off into the ditch. Um, when I lived in Seattle uh, for the year after uh, working for my dad and before we started the church, that was the year that they made it mandatory in King County to publish calorie counts on the menus at fast food drive throughs so you could see just how much calories you were eating. And the incentive was, hey, you can order this double Big Mac if you want, but just so you know, <laughs> there's enough calories here to feed you for a week. That's what we're telling you. Now, I'm, I'm not forbidding you from, ha- from making this happen. I'm just encouraging you to make the right uh, decision in, in this way. So, uh, and whether that's right or wrong, those are, are nudges and whatever. And we're not going to overly incentivize you in that way. When we look at the way, this is, and that's all fun and games when it comes to sort of behavioral economics, and we kind of see, oh yeah, all right, now we're starting to get the picture of how this plays out in our own mind. Uh, And then what happens if you take that mindset and then you read through some of the New Testament narratives about the life and the teaching of Jesus through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you begin to see Jesus doing some of these things, operating this way, knowing the human psyche, knowing that we respond positively generally to nudges and it gets us in better spots, he begins to kind of nudge things for us. Uh, Last week we said he goes into this house of uh, Simon the Pharisee, and and there's this woman, and and Pharisees had this innate way of not being able to kind of 
see uh, their, their fallibility and look really poorly on the fallibility of others, right? That we judge ourselves by one sort of set of rules and then others by another set of, set of rules. That's just kind of human nature. But for them, that was a, a, a common thing. And a woman comes in who's a, a prostitute, a woman of the night or whatever, and she begins to, to wash Jesus' feet with his hair. And then in, in that story, I said, uh, Jesus kind of takes this attention moment and he, he, he looks at her but he's talking to Simon, and he's like, do you even, do you see this woman? And it's this nudge to be like, do you actually see who she is? Or have you just like preconceived like all of these categories for that's the type of person that she is, or that's the type of lifestyle, or that's what you'd expect from somebody like that, right? And he's like, do you see her? And then he begins to walk through all the flaws of when I showed up at the house, you didn't do all these things for me. You acted like you didn't even know me, and yet she, she's been forgetting. And then he goes into a parable, and he tells a story. It's this nudge. It's a nudge. He's nudging this Pharisee to perhaps see things a little bit differently in this way. Maybe for us, as we immerse ourselves in the learning the way of Jesus, right? Because that's what we've said uh, this is on Sunday morning. Why, why do we even gather? Why do we do church? You guys don't even do communion every week or no, 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 bab- baptism is not every week or anything. What's the point of coming? Well, the point of coming is we're a community that are, is trying to discern what it would look like to live in the way of Jesus in 2021. And, and we get it right sometimes, we get it wrong sometimes, and we're just trying to make these things work. Perhaps we too uh, and once we learn the power of nudge and look for nudges in Scripture, then we can learn to kind of be nudged in our own life. As we peek over the shoulders of the original audience who John or Luke or whoever's writing their text to, and then we go out into our world, perhaps when we see somebody on the side of the road, or when we see somebody who's going through some struggles, or we see somebody that we're related to that's going through battling some issues or some demons or whatever, then we could be like, all right, I need to see, I need, I'm being nudged now to kind of see that thing a little bit differently uh, than I would. Maybe it makes us, hopefully it makes us, I think, more human, less self-centered, and more like Jesus. So we're continuing on that path of, uh, of the next step of this, or uh, another part of nudges comes in this idea of herd conformity. That's our, that's our big talk today, right? The nudge of herd conformity, or maybe you've heard it used as kind of like a peer pressure sort of thing, but this idea that humans are easily nudged by other humans. We have this innate thing within us to want to be liked by people, and our methodology sometimes for wanting to be liked by people is to do things like them, to sort of mirror them to talk the way that they talk, to laugh at the things that they laugh about, to joke at the things that they joke about, so that maybe you'll like me. Or, um, or just, just, we just do it. We're just around them. There's a study shown that we, become, we, we begin to look more like the person that we're married to as we get old. The longer you're married, the more you look like the person, which is great news for me, just so you know. That's like the best news I read all week. Uh, but what happens is we match their mannerisms, the way that they smile, and we kind of do that. And we, w- what we like about what we see in them, we copy, and then that makes us kind of more aware of the blind spots that we tend to not smile with that or not be nice. To, there's all kinds of things that come along with this, but we are easily nudged by other humans. So for an example, if we were to do sort of a social experiment, if, if I showed you pictures of cats, excuse me, sorry, I'm going to fix my mic because I think I'm ringing a lot. All right. If I showed you pictures of cats and dogs and asked you to identify them individually, right? If I threw a picture up on the screen and I said, I want you to just, you know, take a, take a moment with a pen and paper and write this down. Is this a cat or is this a dog? Um, you'd probably get it all like 100% correct because you look very smart. So I, I think you would get it probably 100% correct. Now, if I put you in a room with about 100 people 
and ask you to write down your answers anonymously on a piece of paper. If I asked everybody in this room to write it down, and then, uh, then I would have you flip it up and show me, right? Again, I think you would get it 100% correct. Not just that you would say it, but now, now there's pressure and it's gonna be known to everybody. Like, we're gonna highlight all these answers, but, um, but, but you wrote it down and it, it's good to go, right? But if I put you in the same room with 100 people and had the other 99 people go first, all right, so you, you get a chance to write down and you don't have to write down your answer or reveal your answer until you hear the answers of 99 other people. And one by one, each of them said, cat, even though it clearly looks like a dog and it's clearly a dog on the screen. Social economics tell us that there's a good chance that when it finally got to you after hearing 99 cats, even though it's clearly a dog, you probably would say, that is a cat that looks a hell of a lot like a dog. That's all I know, right? Because I don't know what to say other than I must be wrong. I must not be seeing this. There must be something else here that I don't see. Because if I'm not going to be the one person that goes, hey, no, that's a dog. What are you talking about? I'm going to go, there's a camera. Is this a show? Is this a new Netflix thing where I'm like, I'm being watched and I've, I've got to say that that's... So you would say cat, but I, I think it just looks like a dog. And, I, and, and you're sitting there going, not me, I wouldn't. You're right, you wouldn't. You're, you're smarter than that. You're saying I won't be pushed around. That's fine. Here's what's true about me. I'll just say this, right? When, it, when a box shows up on our for, front doorstep, right, and I open it up in front of my wife, and I pull out whatever it is that I bought from Amazon, and she says, how'd you hear about it? I say, what do you think I say, Right? Yeah, I got great reviews, right? Four out of five stars. The Amazon reviews said it was great. That's what I know. That's what we go to. That's what we look. When it comes to the subjective art about what is good music, if you listen to any good music lately, right? Well, what defines good music? How do you know what good music is? Spotify has figured out that when I'm in the mood for something new, it'll say, hey, here's some new releases or whatever. I'll click anything with lots of bars in the now popular box or most recently downloaded. I'm far more likely, and apparently you are too because I don't think it's just my Spotify, I'm far more likely to download songs that had previously been downloaded in significant numbers. Now, remember that I'm free to pick out whatever music I want. Spotify doesn't justify me, like, well, you can't do this one or we're not going to overly incentivize you in this way. I'm free to do whatever. These are simply nudges put in place that utilize my desire to not miss out. Why? Because humans are definitely influenced by other humans. This week, this week in the stock market, I don't know if you saw this, you guys. For reasons that I won't get into here, a popular channel in Reddit, subreddit actually, uh, influenced a bunch of casual investors to dump gross amounts of money into a handful of essentially junk stocks, stocks that don't belong in, in anything, right? So we, sorry, excuse me, these people were nudged to pay a premium, glad some of you got that, uh, to pay a premium for junk stock to screw some hedge fund man managers and hopefully, hopefully, get rich in the process, right? And stock market Twitter was all too willing to let us know that all of our smart, rich friends were already in on it. How do you think that this thing took off? Because people saw other people doing this, go, well, I don't want to miss out. What are we doing? We're screwing hedge fund? Can, we, can I get rich in the process? Okay, I'm in, right? Uh, or can I try or whatever? The general lesson is definitely clear. If you want to influence behavior via a nudge, 
Simply inform people about what other people are doing. If you're a coach, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a boss, if you have anybody that looks to you in terms of what should we do, what should we do, what should we do, one step in the process would be, well, I mean, figure out, figure out what other people are doing successfully. Well, she got a scholarship doing this. I'm just saying, right? Well, he's on, he made the team because he practiced. He was in the gym when he, you know, you're pointing out what other people are doing and perhaps and potentially move people, nudge this person. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to nudge you towards the, you know, the, the preferred outcome or the preferred thing uh, in, in this way, just by pointing out what other people are doing. We're going to look at a story in the text uh, of John, his letter about the person that's teaching of Jesus, that highlights an impar- like a critical part of this sort of nudging because other people are nudged by people. There's a story for, recorded for us in the memoirs. They're basically memoirs of, of a guy named John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and he wrote his last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written probably first. They're called the synoptic gospels. Those ones are kind of synoptic, meaning with one eye, meaning they almost line up timeline-wise exactly. There's very, very few little details with them. John kind of does his own thing a little bit because he's writing much later, not saying nothing's been written about it. He probably recognizes that there's been plenty written about it, but John being one of Jesus' closest, one of the three, Peter, James, and John were his like three closest disciples, going, even though there's plenty of material out there, I think I provide a fresh perspective on it, and I've had um, some time now as well, um, distance away from the crucifixion, distance away from the completions of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to be able to interject my own thoughts into this. It's one of my favorite uh, books. It's probably my favorite gospel. It's the one, if you go out to our free book table uh, on the way out because you're a new guest at East Lake or if you show up one time, um, this, is, this is the book that we give you. We give you a, a message book of John. It's the most clearest picture of Jesus, I think, that we, uh, that we have in this way. So uh, he records a story in John chapter 6 uh, that kind of shows up when Jesus is about at the peak of his popularity with the masses of his day. Um, Jesus would go through ebbs and flows. Um, he would be introduced. People would like him. Then they would not like him. Then they would. You know, but this is, this is when he's at peak popularity, and you'll find out why. In John's timeline of events, Jesus has just figured out a way to feed 5,000 people. So you remember that story, the feeding of the 5,000. Whether he figured out a way to like multiply physical bread or he figured out a way to get rich people to share, because um, I, I think that, that might be more of what's going on. Everybody had some, but they didn't want to share it, so then he kind of convinced rich people to share. And by the way, I think both of those are probably kind of miraculous in their own way. Hungry people became happy people who wanted to know more. Hungry people became happy people, and when you're not hungry anymore, you kind of want to know more. In all, in all likelihood, the motivation was to uh, get more, too, right? I mean, that makes sense in that way. So they followed him around, almost like a TMZ report. When you read John's account of this, there, it's almost like a TMZ reporter, like, well, two boats went that way, but we saw one go to the right, and, one, and one, one didn't have bodies. So we're like, we're not sure exactly where he's at. They find out. They have people coming in from boats, and they're asking him, did you see happen to see a boat? Was it full of guys? Was there one guy that was, like, super, like, cooler than the other ones? Uh, and, and they find the information that, John, that Jesus showed up at this different place. So they get in the boat, they go there, and they find him uh, again. <clears throat> Verse 25 of John chapter 6, and we pick it up here. When they found him on the other side of the lake... They asked him, and I added out of breath because I think that they just was like, they finally found this guy, right? Um, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? When did you get here? Right? Almost like this, uh, oh, you're here. That's crazy. (sighs) You've been seriously hunting for them? Doesn't matter. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, 
but because they ate the loaves. He's calling them out. I know why you're here. You found somebody like make bread out of nothing or you found somebody who had the ability to talk to rich people and convince them that this was a smart thing to do. That, that's really hard to do. So therefore, I don't think you're following because like, oh, you're the son of God. You're following me around like, oh, I can get stuff if I follow you. So, okay, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils. Then Jesus goes into this proverb, right? Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. And just so you know, this is a, he's like reinterpreting this quote or, or grabbing this Old Testament quote from Isaiah that most of these people would probably have known if they were good Jewish kids that grew up kind of hearing these, these things taught and, and, and memorized. It would have, many of them would uh, have memorized at least the Torah, if not some of the prophets as well. So in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, it says this, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what is not, does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. So he pulls in this religious context of a bread that doesn't spoil, a bread that makes you no longer go hungry. He's going to liken himself to the bread of life, and he's basically staging it up for it. He's setting up the conversation to be able to turn the conversation in this way. So then they go, okay, you brought in God to the situation, verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? You, you obviously are saying to us, like, um, don't just follow me based on the fact that I can provide things for you, but like there's a fulfillment that can kind of come, a spiritual fulfillment. There's a longing inside of you that's been missing and you haven't been able to find it anywhere. Um, and so then they ask this natural question, which is a really decent question, right? It's a question that I don't think is much differently asked than us in, in a lot of ways. What must we do to do the good works of men or, or do the good, good works that God requires of us? They thought similar to us in general in life, there are good people and there are bad people. And then there are people in the middle who are trying really, really hard but could use a little help. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, right? <laughs> for, for a lot of people, we would look at them and be like, there's really, really good people. Like Mother Teresa, I don't know. Some other, there's different categories of people. Brent, Pastor Brent, that kind of thing. Over here. Uh, just kidding. Uh, they're really, really good people. Uh, there are really bad people. And like there are people who are trying really hard. But it's really hard to know what you want from me and what's actually wanted from somebody like me. Specifically, what does it take, right, to do the good works that God requires? What does God want from me? This is, dude, this is a legit question. This is the question, if you haven't asked this question, like coming to Eastlake, or if this wasn't a part of your initiation story, if you didn't come to a church like this and be like, this is interesting, this is a unique way of doing church, I like what they offer my kids, I like this, I like this about it, I like that I don't feel pressure, but I, I want to know, like, what do you want from me? That's a legit, you should do this. You should ask that question, what is, it, what is it that you want from me? Because listen, when you have somebody come over to your house and it's a friend and they knock on the door and be like, hey, can we have a conversation? And they bring out some knives or they bring out some vitamins, or they bring out some stuff or I don't know, makeup or anything like that. And you're like, you hear the story, you hear the deal and you're like, all right, what, what do you want from me, right? Or, or you hear a story that's too good to be told, there's this opportunity, blah, 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 blah. You could do this, you could do this. What does it require of me? It's, this, that's a good question. You should be asking that question, Right? What do you want from me or what does it take for me to do this? It affirms intrigue. I like this because it affirms agency. It affirms all kinds of things involved in this. I, I want that question to be asked from people who show up in our community. This is fine. This is good. But I'm, so, I'm, I'm intrigued. When they ask this question, it shows that they're interested in what's going on. 
Uh, and it shows that there's some sort of an expectation of agency as well. Like there is going to be, I don't just get to come and consume. There's something that is going to be required of me. I just can't put my finger on it. If you could just come and tell me what it is, right? It's people basically saying, if I was, and I'm not saying that I am, but if I was interested, what would be required of me? So it's good. Verse 29, Jesus answered. He's got an answer for him. The work of God is this. The work of God is this, to believe the one in the one he has sent, to believe in the one that he has sent. John here affirms what he started with from the very beginning of his kind of take on the life and the person of Jesus. In John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. He's pulling this Greek term that's like that thing that exists somewhere, that that divine being, that thing that you say, I don't know if a God exists. I think, or you'd say, I think that God exists. I just don't know that any religion has the angle on him. John would say at the very beginning, all right, that thing that you categorize in the beginning was that was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he'll go on to say, he made himself known. He, Eugene Peterson writes, he moved into the neighborhood. He's got boots on the ground through the person of Jesus. So what is it that you want? What is it that is required of me? What is it that God wants from me? To believe in the one that he has sent. That's what he wants from you. That's what he wants from me. Oh, I thought it was I had to do something with my sexuality. I thought it had something to do with my pocketbook. I thought it had something to do with all of this, all of these different steps and signups, and I'm not gonna do this, and I promise not to drink that, and I promise not to watch that. Okay, here's what it is. Now, this factors into all of those decision makings, but the point of it is, what does it take to, to please God? What does it take to do the work of God? To believe in the one that he has sent. That, what is the whole point of anything that is in Christian? Is to walk away from it. And say, in Jesus, the divine is known. In Jesus, the divine is known. And the, the audience is probably sitting there, and in their minds, they're processing this information, and Jesus is presenting this. And, and I, I wrote down their kind of thought process, saying, we hear what you're saying, but how can we really know? We, we see that you're sort of insinuating that you think that it's you, but how can we really know? What if you gave us a sign Right, which is like an important thing. Again, a lot of people want, uh, especially when it comes to the realm of the spiritual. I need a sign. I just need to know. I want to move in one direction, but God, I'm asking for a sign. Like I'm asking for one door to be open, or one door to be closed, or for her to say yes, or for him to say no, or something. I just need a sign in this way. So it's totally natural that they would kind of think in this way. But when you're asking for a sign in this context, specifically with what they just came out of of watching the feeding of the five thousand, it means intrinsically that you don't think you've already witnessed a sign. You're writing off what you did previously, and which we do too, right? We can look back and be like, I think God's done some amazing things in my life, but you know, if I just had one more, then I would be, then I would know for sure. And the problem with that is, even if it did happen, you'd be playing the same game a month from now, six months from now, whatever, right? What if since we knew God was with us, when th- and this is their thinking too, so they go, um, what if since we knew God, we have an idea, what if since we knew God was with us when manna appeared to us in the desert, they're reaching back into their ancient history when they got out of Egypt and they're wandering in the promised land and they're trying to like find this way home and they're hungry and they're thirsty and God provides manna in the desert. And for them, that was a sign that was undeniable. Like we cannot deny God was with us in those moments. We knew where we stood with God because he was providing for the hungry people who called him uh, Yahweh, who called him their God. 
We were not like, I wonder if God likes us. Every morning we got out there and miraculously there's food on the ground. That means he likes us. It was so clear in that way. What if in the same way that manna appeared on the ground, you did something more like that? And no doubt they're tying it into, we just saw you do something incredible with bread. Speaking of bread, bread was also the avenue in which we knew that God was for us by the evidence of bread. So they're, they're bringing this, all this, these things together, right? The giving of manna was held to be the supreme work in the life of Moses, and the Messiah was bound to surpass even that. For instance, um, <clears throat> uh, for Jewish people in Jesus' time, they would have the, uh, the Torah, they would have the first five books of the Old Testament, they would have some of the prophets, uh, and they would have the Talmud, uh, they would have the Mishnah, they would have all of these different rules or commentaries based on the text. So there was scripture... And then there was like sub-interpretations of scripture by all of the rabbis who came before. This, you, would, you would read this to know how to interpret this. This is our best guess at what this means. We have this today. We call them commentaries or we have um, uh, different ways of going. I, I can't read the law. Somebody summarize it for me, right? So I'm going to read the summary and that, that's fine. But we know it's not the law, but it's close enough, right? So for them, in one of these Talmuds, this this, this story shows up in this apocalypse of Baruch, right? doesn't matter what it is, but what, what, what I mean is, in that time, there was conversation already about how the incoming Messiah was going to be like Moses. He was going to do things like Moses, but he was going to do them even greater. For instance, verse uh, 29, or verse 8 of chapter 21 in this apocalypse, which is a type of genre of book, anyways. And it shall come to pass that, that self, uh, at that same time, self same time, uh, that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years because they are. Uh, because these are they who have come to the consummation of time. So for instance, in their mind, in their active books that they're currently reading, in the current events book of their day, as they're trying to learn from the teachers of their day, there was a common teaching going out that manna, the the repeating of the miracle of manna was going to happen again. And then Jesus shows up. He multiplies bread. And he's talking about the Son of Man. He's going to equate himself to the bread of life. And they're going, okay, we can start beginning to put, put the pieces together. Why don't you do another sign for us that kind of confirms this in this way? Jesus then declared, verse 35 of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is a, this is a pretty common phrase. You've seen this on a lot of Christian t-shirts. You've seen this on um, like loaves of bread sold by Christian distributors. You've seen this on uh, bumper stickers. You've seen this on cross-stitch at your grandma's house. Like there's, there's different ways that this verse shows up. This is a very, very common memorized text of this way. And this is the context. He's doing it in context of people expecting a miracle of bread. So he goes, you're expecting a miracle of bread? I'm the bread. You don't need physical bread to show up on your grass for you to know that God is with you. Better yet, I got something better for you. I'm the bread. I've showed up. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, you go, will never go hungry. When you eat that bread, you still go hungry again. You're still hungry afterwards. What if there was a bread that like, fully fulfilled you? What if there was something more? For them, like many of us, this would be a clue because bread always represented life to them. Bread was a sign of life. Listen, it's just as true for us, isn't it? That's the only reason we go to Olive Garden. We don't go there for the pasta. We go there for the breadsticks. And the waiter comes to take our drink order. We say, yeah, 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 yeah. Bring breadsticks. Then we'll get our drink orders in. That's what we do. Bread represents life. One of their religious feasts that they celebrated to kind of remember where they came from and remember our heritage was a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is how important bread was to them in their culture. 
We, they had an entire religious feast. They would only do like five to seven of these different types of feasts. Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Passover, whatever. This one, there's one called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here's what, the, here's what they were trying to remember. Remember that time that God whisked us out of Egypt and we didn't even have time to let our bread rise? And so now we eat unleavened bread, which is basically flat, gross, nasty bread. And we do it to remind ourselves that at one point, God moved so quickly, we didn't even have time to finish cooking our bread. And then they gnaw on crappy bread. And they go, isn't it God great? And they still do it with bread. That's, that's, this is how central this is to these people and what they're doing. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's touching into like actual figures of life for them. The crowd begins to grumble. There's a couple of verses I'm going to skip over just for the sake of time. But they begin to, they begin to talk amongst themselves. How dare he equate himself to something as important as bread? I mean, come on. We've got to have bread. Isn't this... He says he's bread, bread of life. Isn't this Joseph's? The guy, we know Joseph. Isn't this his son? We know Joseph. This is the kid that was like kicking the soccer ball. This is the kid that grew up like working with his dad. We, we know this family, and now he's coming to us and trying to tell us he's the bread of life. And then the conversation then shifts a little bit sideways for everybody involved. Having just equated himself to bread, John wants to stress to his readership the importance of the sacrament of Holy Communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or you know what we call it as just communion in general. So he turns the conversation towards that sacred ritual. Now again, John was written probably 30, 40 years after um, uh, or even longer after the death of Jesus and the, the establishment of the church has already been going. A lot of the stuff in Acts, Paul's letters are probably already written. The, the church is already in operation. And what was the defining thing of the church? It was communion and baptism, communion and baptism, bringing them in, reminding ourselves what Jesus was and getting baptized, this new identification with Christ. Those were the two massive things that the church always did. And so in order to probably justify this unique activity of communion, John shifts this conversation or recollects this part of the conversation with vivid detail about the awkwardness involved in Jesus talking about um, his body being the bread of, of Christ and this, this thing for communion. Also, probably, or it could have been added later by some sort of redactor to be like, the church is going to do something weird, but here's the backdrop for it. Here's the point that makes it kind of a unique rite, R-I-T-E, a unique rite uh, or sacrament to be able to process this. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. <clears throat> then the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's talking about flesh now. Jesus, because he, he's gone from this like imagery to like, like, I'm the bread of the world. Okay, I can get behind that. And you're going to eat my, my flesh in the same way that you eat blood. And they're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, yeah, it is weird. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is why, by the way, outsiders of the Christian religion, as it's gaining traction in Rome and is starting to come under persecution and scrutiny of, elder, of, of all of these other people, it's starting to gain popularity and therefore those in power want to speak ill of it and come up with unique ways. Well, I heard this. Well, I heard they do this. Well, I heard they do this. One of the things about their, one of the ways that they kind of criticized this community of the Christian church was like, I heard they're like into cannibalism or something. 
I'm not kidding. One of the Roman emperors like writes about this or in the history of, of the Roman Empire is this Christian cult. They would call it a cult because they're all about this cannibalism sort of stuff. Now, there's a lot of weird things that go on in other religions that we too, we look at other religions and like, well, I heard they do this. Can you believe it? I mean, I've, I've never been in one of those temples. I've never been in one of these different places. I've never been in that, but I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, right? We have these commentaries too. This is what's going on for them. For a lot of outsiders in this time, I've heard they're in a cannibal. They talk about flesh of Christ and drinking his blood. It's super weird. Kids, don't sign up for that. Kids, ask your parents about it. Whatever, all this kind of stuff, right? There's a chance that this, uh, again, part of this passage wasn't written, actually written by John, included later to kind of justify the practice of communion. But even if you take it out, I think the sticking point remains. The point of it all is this. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples, not his 12, his crowd, his people, said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Now, some translations say who can understand it, but the actual word there actually re- resonates more with who can accept it. This is really hard to kind of wrap our minds around. And even if we could understand it, could we actually do it in this way? This is tough, man. Verse 66, a couple of verses later, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. He lost a lot of people that day. When he chose to talk about his flesh representing this bread and his blood representing this and this future sacrifice and, and, and tying this into communion, he's going to lose a lot of people in this way, both for the claim to divinity, but then also for the weirdness that accompanies it along the way. And in the synoptics, as I mentioned before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the synoptics. In the synoptics, Jesus had many private conversations with his disciples. He would tell a parable, and then they'd be like, I don't understand. And then he'd go to his his 12 and say, let me tell you the definition of this. Let me tell you what I didn't say to everybody. He would have lots of private conversations with them. But in John's account, in his entire story, having written as one of the three most popular There is no written account of Jesus having intimate private conversations with the disciples except in one case, and it's right here. This is the one time Jesus pulls his his core group of disciples together and says something specifically to them that John records for us. And here's what he says in verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Look at the crowd. Leave. Look at this opportunity to call it quits. Look at this opportunity to walk away. Everyone's starting to bail. You don't want to leave too, do you? This week, as the stocks begin to sort of trend downward, they got like locked out by Robin Hood and locked out by TD Ameritrade and whatever. You saw a bunch of people telling the crowd via Twitter, hold the line, hold the line, don't sell off. Hang on, we can really screw these guys. But we see the trajectory of the pin in the crowd and we don't want to be the only one holding on at some point. We see everybody bailing on something and we'd be like, well, I don't want to be the guy holding 12 stocks of GameStop at $350 a piece, right? And now it's down to $4 like it should be. That's just my opinion, whatever. I... I don't want to be that guy. If I start seeing this thing start taken down, I'm too conservative an investor. I go click send. I'm out. I'm out. In this way, Jesus is like, you're watching, you saw we had this big, gigantic crowd of people, and then it began talking about like this bread of life piece and what I'm equating myself to and, and like this purpose stuff. And then everybody's leaving. Do you, so what about you? Are you leaving as well? 
We don't want to be the only one saying dog when everyone else is saying cat. Even when, gosh, that looks like a dog, man, but I'm going to go with cat because I don't want to be one out of a hundred. Jesus says, what about you? What are you thinking? Are you out to? Here's the easy out for you. Nobody shames you for walking away at this point. We know why you, we know why you followed him. He was healing people, multiplying bread for thousands. We cannot blame you for that. You benefited economically from following Jesus. But then he started talking about ultimate things, ultimate allegiances, ultimate value systems, things that would demand things from you to do things his way that would require you to defer your way of doing things. This is when we get to the spot where some of his disciples would understand in, in following his way that there would be activity becoming of themselves where they would say, this is not what I would do if it were just up to me, but it is Christ in me that compels me. You see this in the area of forgiveness or, or generosity or so many things when you go, and when somebody goes, thank you, and you'd be like, dude, it's not me. I, I would never do this by myself. It's Christ inside me that compels me to forgive you, even though, like, I just can't. Like, you're... His ways are higher than my ways. I don't understand it, but I'm, I'm called to operate in this. Just a reminder for the nudge, a nudge, any aspect of choice architecture that push, pushes people towards doing something in a predictable way without forbidding them or significantly changing their economic advantages. Jesus did not forbid them to leave. He did not pay them to stay. In fact, the opposite. He looks at them and says, you can leave now if you want. There will be no long-lasting economic incentives for following me. I've already told you I'm not going to be the bread machine, the bread guy who just multiplies bread. Herd conformity, herd conformity is legit. Humans are easily nudged by other humans. So now, if you choose to stay, it starts to mean something. Because even though you benefited economically in a bread acquisition, you also benefited economically from the crowd loves you and loves you even more and more and more, and you're beginning to be popular, and you're the guy who knows the guy. But now that everybody's leaving, that's even off the table. So what is in it for you? If you choose to stay, then that's actually reflecting a choice that you're making, not because of economic incentives in this way. Let me finish their phrase, or what, how they responded. Verse 67 again, you do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, kind of as the spokesperson for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. <clears throat> to whom shall we go? Where else would we go? What other live options do we have considering what we've seen and what we've heard? And what we know from the alternative to go back into a system of life that really is just kind of wake up, go to work, come home, do the same thing, repeat, get to the weekend. In this way of life, like, that's what we're saying no to. Like, this is, this is different. Like, to whom should we go? This is John's version of Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is with the disciples again. He's on top of a mountain overlooking a big giant city that's really famous and got a lot of money and a lot of pagan religion, all this kind of stuff. And he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say this. Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am, right? You're not going to leave too, right? Who do you say that I am? What's your opinion? 
with nobody looking around. What do you think? I think that you're the son of the living God, that you are the Messiah. For Peter and for many of us, the way of Jesus is hard to accept. Who can accept this? There are things asked of us, required of us, that like requires reinterpretation. Like That's going to be really, really hard. It's going to be really, really hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. To forgive when it doesn't feel right. To be generous, to be this. To, I don't know, so much involved in this. It's going to be hard to accept, absolutely. There remains so much, so much mystery, so many issues, so many whatabouts, whatabouts, whatabouts. But it's the allegiance and the love which we give because our hearts will not allow us to do anything else. And if you're not a Christian, then you can choose to take or leave this part. I understand. But for a lot of us, we look at this and we like, to whom will we go? Like, what are our other options? Like, I don't know, man. I'm just so convinced. I think I've seen too much. And I don't understand it all. Jesus uses the power of a nudge to position his disciples into a new understanding. I'm closing with this. A new place of understanding about what they were signing up for. And he does the same to us as we read about it, study it, and find our place in the story a couple thousand years later. And has herd conformity narrowed since then? Are we less likely to be nudged by more humans? No, I, I would probably argue the opposite in this way. So then his questions remain to us as we read this story, study this story, and think about this and reinterpret it for where we're going. Like Jesus is asking us the same question, well, who do you say that I am? And you too, are you looking to leave? And what is our response in those moments? We're being nudged. We're being nudged all the time, a culture that is going one way, a church that is going hopefully a different way. What about you? Are you looking to leave too? Do we have enough in the tank to say, where would we go? To whom, to whom would we, we go? We've, we've seen too much, right? That is the challenge. That is, I think, the nudge for us to think about today. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> um, Thank you for having John record this story for us and the emotions involved in this. And I know that it kind of puts the disciples on some sort of a pedestal, so maybe it was an easy story for him to include. But I also think that there was probably a bit of a pause between Jesus' words and Peter's response. I'd like to think maybe it was fast and quick, but I imagine that there's some calculations going on in his mind. In the same way that calculations going on in our mind as well when we show up to events like church and have to decide what we're going to do with what we've heard uh, for that day. See if the math works out. See if there's enough incentive in this. And as Jesus reminds us, not always will there be an incentive. In fact, when there's not an incentive, that is the time when the true opinion of the choice comes out. So I pray that you would help us as we perhaps face the question, and what do you, who do you say that I am? Uh, may we be nudged in that direction. We'd be nudged towards the reality of the context of the decision that we're making. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on in your name. Amen.